when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the Texas state legislature indulged themselves in one of their favorite fetishes, making it hard for women to use their reproductive rights. This time out, the women are chattel set, are targeting minors, and making it harder for them to obtain a judicial bypass. What is that? We shall explain. Meanwhile, in Washington, we have a classic story of the haves and the have-nots. Some members of Congress, apparently alarmed that food stamp recipients can just walk into a grocery store and buy whatever is there, is proposing to change this. Meanwhile, another group of Congress critters are proposing that they all get a raise because it's just too hard to live on a six-figure salary while you're waiting to cash in on your connections after retirement. As usual, it's pay raises for some, tiny American flags for others. Finally, we pick up where we left off last week with part two of our conversation about Seymour Hersh's alternative telling of the Osama bin Laden raid and its aftermath in the media and politics. I'm Jason Lincolns, here today with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Arthur Delaney, Sam Lockman, and Ali Watkins. And here's what happened first. Hey, 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 hey. So, okay, um... Hi, everyone. Hi, guys. It's Jason. Arthur. It's Arthur. Hi. This is Sam. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> That's really well done, you guys. I like that. I like this is great. So welcome to So That Happened. We're jumping at the bit to get started today. Um, yeah, we got we got dog imitations. We're talking about pork rinds. It's going to be an interesting uh, podcast today. Uh, I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press. Uh, joining me today uh, is uh, a veteran of this podcast. Arthur Delaney. Arthur Delaney. He writes about uh, economic issues. I basically write about food stamps these days. Yeah, food stamps. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're also joined by someone making her debut or premiere. Do we decide it's premiere? Debut. I like debut more. All right. On on so that happened. Sam Lackman. Sam Lackman, our 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 uh, our um, our dual citizen uh, reporter. Yes. Sam is from Vancouver originally. Invading. Yes, and I'm fascinated. Like Ted yes. Cruz. Yes. That's right. Though I have not renounced my citizenship. Smart. So far. Sam is part of the burgeoning Canadian Reconquista movement. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty soon we'll all be eating poutine, and, uh, and there will be a, our football fields will be 110 yards long. Right. And we will have rouges, right, in football. What's a rouge? Uh, it's, it's like a two-point play. Oh, we are about to have that. We are about to have that in football. See? Oh, wow. So we're already working our magic. It's yeah, exactly, exactly. The two point play. Exactly. Well, um, welcome, you guys. How 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 have you guys been this week? I'm good. I'm going to Denver after work. So I know about you going to Denver. I'm excited for that. Smoke weed. <laughs> certain a certain executive in this office asked if I was going on a on a marijuana tour this weekend. And are you? 
Um, I'd like to decline to comment about it. Okay, that's fine. That's Just fine. don't eat too much. It's really, it really is a risk. People made fun of Maureen Dowd, but she was right. <laughs> right. If you yeah. eat too much, you'll think you've thrown your life in the toilet. Yes, slices. It, it's like buy a nice bottle of whiskey, but don't drink the whole thing in an hour. Right. Yeah, those are the things you do. Air is very thin up there, so I mean, it's good to supplement it with something. Unless you're splitting between many different people. Do that. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. Right. Puff puff pass. Like your parents. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, no, now, not like that. Now we're now we're implicating a lot of things. But again, Canadians. <laughs> Canadians, man. <laughs> They're amazing. They're amazing. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Denver, mm. I had a lovely time in Denver. I was there for the OA convention. I had. Uh, I had uh, uh, Rocky Mountain oysters, and I thought they were delicious. But their airport is terrifying. Is it? It's really terrifying. It was like, it terrifying because of the state you were in. You were just no, so no, overwhelmed I by was, Democrats everywhere. Or I was, was not. The... Although, I, funnily enough, I was on the same flight as Maureen Dowd. Oh wow! No, she was. She was at the luggage thing with me. That's amazing. And I was just You didn't warn her. You didn't and I was see just, into the future. I was like looking at her, I was like I was like, I wonder if she's staring at this luggage conveyor and thinking, I could use this in my column for the next forty <laughs> columns. Right. Right? Like the Terminator. It's just going uh, the scanner. She's like a column worthy or not, every target. She's like a <laughs> she's like a hackery sponge, you know. If someone like says a cliche in the course, she's like, Oh, that's mine now, son. That's mine now. My metaphor. Um, no, but the airport is filled. Okay, a lot of people have like a, these kind of like eerie feelings about the Denver airport. Uh-huh. It's like pars, part and parcel with a lot of weird Illuminati mythology. And there are a bunch of very weird pieces of artwork all over the airport. But leaving that aside, what's terrifying about the Denver airport is that when you step outside, there's a gigantic white horse right. with glowing red eyes. Right, the red eyes. Evil horse. It's like the bunny in uh, in uh, what's it called again? In uh, Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko. Yes. But it's a horse. That's what it looks like. Yes. Sounds it is. like a war horse. <laughs> <laughs> it is a war. It is a war, famine, pestilence, and death horse out there in Denver. And like the glowing red eyes are just amazing because it's just like this is great, but how can we make it terrifying? Right. You know. So we're going to talk a little bit about something that I guess a lot of people find terrifying today. Um, <laughs> nice Texas transition. Yeah, I'm, let me, uh, you're not used to my transitions. No, they're, I like it. They're always terrible. Speaking of red eyes. And, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I did a really terrible one last week that I'll never live down. I am at my most Maureen Dowd when I'm doing transitions between segments. Right. Believe me. I will latch on to any piece of dumbness that I can get. So, okay. Uh, Samantha, Sam... How do you prefer to be? You, you prefer. I'm a Sam, but there are two other Sams in this office. So. And there's soon to be a. And there's a Samantha. Yeah, but you're not a byline Sam. Samantha, right? Samantha in the byline. I like Sam conf- Lachman on Twitter. I like confusion, oh. so everyone's Sam to me. Okay. Okay, so Sam, you wrote this week about uh, what's going on in Texas with uh, with the most recent round of, of, I guess, what people call trap laws, targeted restrictions against abortion providers. No, this one isn't actually anything to oh, do with clinics. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. My because they already trapped all the they clinics. All trapped they trapped the clinics. How many clinics are left in Texas? So Now it's targeted restrictions against women. Tra right. laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And minors, specifically. Traum laws. Tra- wow. That's a new thing. <laughs> we should make that happen. Um <laughs> There are only, I mean, there are like less than half as many clinics in Texas as there were before these trap laws and went into effect. But those are there's like an injunction against that. And so the Federal Circuit of Court of Appeals heard arguments a few months ago about those laws against clinics. 
And that court could rule against the clinics and shut a whole bunch down. And then it's probably going to go to the Supreme and Court. Those, okay, so there are still places in, in Texas where a woman can get an abortion. In, like, the major cities. But a whole, like, you know, Austin or... And the the stand th- those particular but. laws, if I'm if I'm if I recall correctly, they uh, they they mandated that abortion clinics had to be up to the same sort of standards as code as an ambulatory surgical. Center. Exactly, exactly, which like mandates like the width of the hallways and how many bathrooms you have to have and what kind of like air ventilation systems, like nothing to do with actually anything medical. So right. Very expensive upgrades for a lot of clinics that weren't able to manage those and were, would shut down if this law that they passed actually goes into effect, but it's all held up in litigation right now. Okay, so tell us about the new law that has been proposed and yeah. is moving through the Texas legislature. Yeah, the Texas House passed this new law um, and the Senate is any day now, could be even today or tomorrow, is going to pass this law that um, deals with what's called judicial bypass. So judicial bypass is where there's a minor, someone under the age of 18, who wants to get an abortion, but maybe they're living in foster care or they they have abusive parents or they're worried that getting the notarized consent that Texas requires would put them their lives in danger. So Texas requires – some states say you just have to notify your parents. Texas says you have to get notarized consent from your parents. So if a minor says, well, I can't do that, then they can go to petition a judge and say, hey, will you allow me to have an abortion? So Texas is trying to make that whole process more difficult in a whole bunch of different ways. Notarized consent. Um, can we have more information about what that is? Do you have to, like, get your parents to go with you to a notary public? Yeah. Seriously. Or do notary publics make house calls? For some this? do. Some do. Right. My, my wife's a notary public. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That could be useful to me at some point. Yep. She would happily notarize this, but uh, last, <laughs> last we don't live in Texas. Okay, I'm sorry for interrupting. Let's no, 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 not at all. The, the particularly, I think, kind of most um, insidious part of this legislation that they proposed to make the whole process for minors to get an abortion more difficult is that they also said that it'll presume the state will presume that everyone seeking an abortion um, is a minor unless that person shows a valid form of government identification. So they took the rationale behind their voter ID laws and applied it to the procedure. Wait, oh, interesting. Yeah, the law assumes everyone is seeking a minor. An abortion from now on is a minor. So you could have someone who clearly is like in their 30s walk into a clinic and they have to show a form of identification and if they don't have a driver's license or whatever they wouldn't be able to get the procedure that is nuts yeah that so would, a, would a, so a, a, a school id suffice for that? that's the question arthur so i have been bugging the sponsor in the texas state senate who's sponsoring this legislation past the house now it's in the senate to say what does a valid form of government identification mean? Because that's all the law says. It doesn't spell out what specific types. Because as we know, when Texas passed their very strict voter identification law, which is one of the strictest in the nation that had severe impacts upon people, basically a lot of different people trying to vote last year. People um, who, you know, just by coincidence might be Democratic. Right, exactly. Yeah, lower income people. Yeah, it might be Um, They said for elections that you can use a gun permit, for instance, but not a government-issued student ID if you go to the University of Texas at Austin or whatever. That makes sense because, like, clearly... If you're doing book learning, yeah. you probably should not be voting. Well, the right. idea is, or you know, getting an abortion, know. right? If <laughs> but if you're if you're ready to shoot some shit, yeah, yeah. Texas. So you vote. might. So it's it sounds like it's quite possible that this would be the same standard for the right. abortion ID. Right. We still don't know the standard. Aren't you allowed to vote for a gun in Texas? Can't you be like my gun? To be a gun. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, there was an Onion article. I think one my gun, gun should gun, run Abilene. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> El Paso City Council is like six dudes and 15 guns. <laughs> 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 that's 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 insane. Yeah. So we don't we don't know specific what specific types of identification will be kosher. Um we're waiting to find out. It sounds like they don't know either. They don't know. He's still like they told me that I kept on bugging him. They said we're going to get back to you on that cuz he might offer some sort of amendment or whatever before the Senate votes on it. Um but for now, that seems like a pretty big impact. Not just you're already making it more difficult for minors to get the judicial impasse and your uh, bypass, sorry. And you're also saying for anyone who's seeking the procedure that you also have to have this form of identification. And for, I mean, specifically for women, it's difficult sometimes to have government ID because, like, maybe you lost your birth certificate and you might need that to get whatever type of driver's license you want to get or whatever. So it's not just a process that might take a few days. And to me, the more troubling part of this is that let's say you have someone who is bumping up against the number of weeks that a clinic will do the procedure, and then you have to go get a form of ID, maybe you pass the number of weeks that you're allowed to get that procedure. In Texas, you might even have to like leave the state and go to New Mexico, where there's a clinic that does it later. So it's they're pushing people to do it later. They, which, will, they will probably criminalize that. Right. At some leaving the state. <laughs> leaving the state. Right. So, uh, so you're, you're, you might even be forcing people to delay. It's like safer to do it earlier, right? So... In a lot of different ways, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with safety. And, like, what are we afraid of? Is that By never shit? defining a form of ID, it opens up the door to moving the goalposts at the provider level, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and then in terms of the judicial bypass, the thing that I wanted to bring up is that um, it used to be that if you're a minor and you have a lawyer or whatever, you could petition a judge in any county in Texas to allow you to have an abortion. Because the idea was, like, let's say you live in a county with five people you know, your parents or whoever you're afraid of asking for an abortion might find out. So you could go to another county and ask a judge in another county to protect your privacy. And now they're saying you also have to do it in the county where you reside. This is uh, this is part of a, a wave of abortion proposals yes. to restrict the procedure that have, has been going on since President Obama took office, in some ways triggered by the Affordable Care Act, that- giving, you know, focusing attention on medical procedures. Yeah, and specifically in 2010 when a lot of Republicans took over state legislatures across the country. That as, was sort of... part of the Tea Party back. Yeah, exactly. So 2010 was the start of it. I think the most restrictions like ever were in 2011 and 2012. So things are sort of calming down now because they have to come up with creative new restrictions. So there's... And what you'll see is states copying each other. So Texas is the first one to do this like mandatory ID thing. So I'm sure we'll see that in other states. Or now new states like... They, you come up with all these different things. Like some states are saying, You've "Oh, you got to have solid gold girdies." It's yeah, like, right. Yeah. Or they're telling they're telling doctors to tell patients that the pre- medication abortion, the pill you can take up to nine weeks, is reversible, which isn't which based is on crazy. crazy. You're supposed like doctors in two states. I think it's Arizona and Oklahoma. I might be wrong about that. But two states, you have to tell them that the procedure, if you take the pill, could be reversible. Which is a lie. Which is a, it's not based on anything. It's like, so, so you get all these different types of new creative restrictions that aren't just targeted at shutting down clinics or aren't just targeted at moving it from, you can get it until 24 weeks or whatever the row standard is to earlier. It's targeted but, at lying it to people. Yeah, now, yeah. So... So, yeah. And Wendy Davis no longer in the legislature. No. So we'll see what kind of I mean, they also in Texas, they changed the number of votes you need to approve legislation in the Texas state Senate or the number to have a filibuster or whatever. So Democrats are like really have basically no power in the Texas state Senate. So this is guaranteed to pass. It'll be interesting to see if the governor. They should get guns. (laughs) 
guns. Add guns to their caucus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gun representatives. So moving on, uh, I've been feeling uh, we're going to have a little bit of like the haves and the have nots briefly. I've been feeling the food stamps issue lately. Oh, wow. That's why I called you, Arthur. Thank you. To talk about food stamps. What's new in the world of food stamps? Well, food stamps uh, actually is. Because the last time we talked, there was sort of some good news. Yeah, I don't remember any good news about food stamps. Well, the the good news may have been you know fewer people are on food stamps. Right. Well, so. I think I think you said that like the Congress had taken up the issue and they had like not been talking about it in the stark terms that people on food stamps should be stigmatized. That, you know that the uh, uh, Republican leadership has tried to refrain from having any uh, you know focusing on food stamps in a in a bomb throwing way. Right. Okay. Our committee chairmen are like that as well. But uh I, I think it's this issue is really hot just beneath that level. I think it's like abortion actually in the States. Uh it's constantly there's been a wave of uh, of legislation targeting food stamps this year, uh but it's part of a bigger wave that's been going on since twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with uh, this year, the, the hot new thing is restricting what people on food stamps can buy with the benefits. Yeah, I noticed that. And I, I've obviously seen the news about the laws of you can't go on a cruise if you're on food stamps. And I, I mean, I'm not particularly moved by that. But what baffles me is that these these restrictions that keep people from eating seafood. Yeah. Like sometimes fish is the healthiest stuff in the store. That is baffling to people uh, because – you have to be uh, sort of a, a food stamp reporter, basically, to notice this pattern of complaining that people on food stamps are eating crab legs all the time. Crab legs? It, Is there it, an epidemic of people eating crab it's legs? Just, it's a political tradition. I don't know five people who eat crab legs on a regular <laughs> basis. But you had that – Arthur had a great story where he showed – the proportion of people on food stamps buying these things compared to like the regular population, and then compared to other poor people. Sure, I mean it almost it yeah. almost goes without saying that yeah. it's not true. It's not true. People, right. yeah. It almost goes without saying, <laughs> but it turns out we have some numbers and in, in survey of thousands of people, including poor people, on and not on food stamps. It it, it turns out the ones who get benefits had eaten less crabs. It was just three percent had had any crabs. <laughs> they had not. It's like four percent for everybody else. <laughs> so so stupid. Uh, but so is it is it they're not allowed to buy cans of tuna? This, is so tuna swept under there, this there, ban? There have been proposals to restrict food stamp food choices in three states, and now in Congress we have one. Uh-huh. And in it was Missouri at first they said just no uh seafood and no steak. Any seafood. And in, that's crazy. In Wisconsin, they proposed no shellfish, and that's actually uh, that was approved by the lower chamber of the Wisconsin State Assembly. So, do you that, think that the lawmakers here ever like take a minute to be like, "What am I doing? Whoa, this is so. I am a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Look at what I've devoted my life to doing. I talk. You can't eat clams. <laughs> like that's my fucking legislative like legacy, John." Mahoney, they don't the pretend. Missouri State Representative, he defined himself by keeping poor people from eating oysters. Yeah, fucking a, hero. All, no shellfish. Uh, it, I mean, like, it, so none none of these people like none of these people like actually take stock and and like 
reflect and come up come to the conclusion that they are like gaping douchebags. Well, what well, what one of them said was that this would is, take self awareness. He said right. he admitted it's based on uh, you know real and perceived abuses. You know, admitting it's based on the. I like that. We're doing perceived. it on perceived abuses. It's based yeah. on the apocryphal story of the, the the surf and turf food stamp recipient living large. It also banned junk food. So there's this notion that people on food stamps, and there are 45 million of them in America, it's a huge program. The only uh, safety net program that you have to use in front of your fellow Americans with a, with a government debit card at the store. But there's this just this idea that they go from gorging on steak and lobster and then uh, drink buckets of soda and eat cookies and chips. And so the Wisconsin legislation bans all of that. The The bill in Congress that came out in the last week doesn't target uh, shellfish or steak. Oh, how nice of it that. only It targets the junk food, but it does it in an interesting way. There's another federal program that's smaller than food stamps serves about 8 million people. It's a program for pregnant women. WIC. WIC, yeah. Yeah, the Women, Infants, and Children program. It's you're pregnant or you're nursing or you have a little kid, and this program you get a voucher. In some states it's still paper, and you can only buy, like, Enfamil and broccoli <laughs> with it. And so with instead of trying to figure out what would be a good thing for people on food stamps to eat, we're just going to take the standard from WIC and 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 change food stamps so that's what, so it's a lazy piece of legislation. You add vodka to Enfamil and broccoli. That's an interesting cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was a proposal, and it's and and it, sponsors of it are members of the committee that oversees this program. Um, and you, you go back and forth as a reporter, being, am I going to write about this bill that's obviously kind of uh, performance art? Uh, you know, very theoretical. And give it more attention than it deserves. Or is Republican leadership going to up and fold it into some other thing that's going to pass in the dead of night? Because that has that's how we got a ban on felons from receiving food stamps. That's in federal law. No which debate. Is, which is just totally stuck. smart because, like, what you want is for hardened felons to be starving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and so I, I wondered. That'll show him. <laughs> so I, I did the story. I did the story. I, I had my existential self doubt, but I went ahead, and uh, and that and that's what's going on. Republicans are are who are more thoughtfully reviewing the program. This week actually had a hearing, and they they had a food stamp, a former food stamp recipient testify, who basically just said it's a terrific program, and they're like, we thank you for your testimony. And two other guys on the committee were like, "What about the food stamp surfer, the uh, the guy who Fox News said, <laughs> the guy you cherry picked, the, yeah, the gaping asshole who's who's ruining it for everybody?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, he he looms large over this whole debate. The whole idea, again, that because it's a government program that helps poor people, they don't use it well. Uh, really has saturated. How the, about we just restrict? How about we pass a law just restricting? food stamps from people who go on TV bragging about how they're abusing the system. Problem solved. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, shoop, shoop, shoop with my hands. Problem solved. Like, if you're seeking publicity because you, like, abused your uh, government assistance, no more. Problem solved. Everyone else can uh, continue. The, to the program only exists because in the, uh, the, in the early decades of the 20th century, farmers were growing more crops than they could possibly sell. So the government was just buying it from them. 
to to help them out. And then they're like, hey, we have all this surplus commodity. Maybe we could give it to, to poor, hungry people. And then uh, that that's that's where the program came from. It's basically was welfare for farmers first. And then we sort of stumbled into this program that is income support, but instead of just giving people money, it go it has to be for food. And now we're really grappling with the fact that there's all kinds of food in the modern American grocery store and you know some of it is less healthy than others and we're becoming a more health conscious country and this is how the debate is 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 playing out over healthy eating why not just uh, incentivize, by controlling poor people why not just incentive instead of like doing degrading stuff that like dictates to people what they can buy just like incentivize healthier choices that's a great idea they that, could do that, that but they're not like doing crazy yeah, to do no, that no that, that yeah. would be really easy you know yeah no, that's not happening we're talking about people for whom making healthy choices is something they do like maybe twice a year right <laughs> so um some of the some of the people who are having this debate are also taking up a debate as to whether they deserve a raise uh, the uh, 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 Steny Hoyer, um, who's the minority whip in the Senate, um, sorry, in the House, not in the Senate, uh, says that people in Congress deserve a raise. Right now they get paid, I think, $187,000. No, 174, $174,000 uh, yeah, yeah. which sounds great to me. Sounds pretty awesome. Like that'd be a, I'd, I could fuck with that. Or we're, yeah, one of the, we're one of the only like uh, the only legislature in the world that pays itself three times the, the median household income of the country. Yeah, yeah. So they need a raise, and so the argument, the argument for giving Congress a raise, is that if they don't, only the wealthiest people will want to serve in Congress. And I'm like, nah. I mean, if I'm making fifty grand and I get a congressional seat, then I'm suddenly making. $124,000 more. We already have only the wealthiest people. Yeah, exactly. That's now, like from That has to do with campaign finance I'll and like be, all these other things. I'll be totally fair about this. Two of the loudest voices for this are Steny Hoyer, who I just mentioned, and Alcee Hastings, neither of whom rank among the wealthiest members of Congress. There are apparently members of Congress who just sort of get by. And it's a fact that that in this in this sort of modern era, con- Congress critters are expected to have a domicile in Washington D.C. or thereabouts. Oh, give me a break! And a, and a home back in their district. This is very generous of you to make. To... I'm this. I'm straining myself to be generous. Okay, I'm straining myself that, uh, on 174 grand. Yeah, you you can afford two domiciles. That's true. That's true. Especially if one I, and, of them's and, not in Washington. And I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. The whole, like, you got to go home to your district stuff never wash with me. I'm just like, nah, you're a fucking D.C. politician. The, you the, stay here. The reason their salaries are <laughs> high. you got a mess high. of fucking politicos back in, back, in, back in your home district that can report to you what the fuck you need. They have high, Skype. They have high salaries because this was a, a reform to right. put a stop to their habit of, t- of making paid speeches to moneyed interests who would influence legislation. Did that stop? They haven't that had. That never <laughs> happens anymore. No, yeah. you can't. They don't. You cannot be go make a paid speech if you're a member of Congress. Uh, but you know they haven't had a raise since '09 when the Tea Party came around. But but really, neither has America. No shit. So 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 they won't they they won't get one, and that's fine. Good for you. Bye. <laughs> Arthur's uh, over it. There's, there's, there are a lot of people right now. I, I think this is hilarious. There are a lot of people who actually uh, serve in Congress, 
and live in their offices, like Shaheen Nasirapur, Huffington Post e- economic reporter. <laughs> we, this is the grandest for, of standing. For whom? For whom is? Of course, is for whom? For yeah, of course it is. Uh, uh, I live in my office. I'm a member of Congress. My office has a gym, a pool. People clean it for me. Right, I got a, a bathroom cafeteria. and a microwave. Like it's a really it's protected twenty four seven by armed guards. You have to you have to see it's renovated the Capitol recently. complex. Yeah. It's probably the most gorgeous, wonderful office in the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's pretty nice, but I think in like some you know kleptocracies like in Russia, everything's like gold. But but yeah, our our place is. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Pretty. It is, there's lots of gold Our, stuff. Yeah, in you're it. right. In the capital yeah. proper, sure. That's true. The the uh, the satellite legislative offices around there are, are not as nice, but they're still pretty nice. Yeah, so so I think it's Joaquin Castro, uh, Representative Joaquin Castro suggested that that Congress be declared a public housing project. <laughs> <laughs> to his brother. Yeah. His brother, who's that secretary. Yeah, who's the secretary. I'd love to see that happen. Yeah. Because they are claiming a huge tax-free benefit by living in their office. Yeah. And they're passing it off as if it's like a fucking hardship. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like they have cots up there, like they're, they're a mash unit or something. You know, <laughs> it, 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 like they can't afford a nice bed. It's crazy to me. But yeah, it is, it is like some serious grandstanding. Why do people buy that? Why do people buy that? Oh, my congressman, he lives real, sleeps in his office. That's a, that's a good question. I, I glad guess, I'm glad I asked it then. Uh, <laughs> I thought it that. was okay, but if you say it's good, uh, I, do, do you, what, why do you think people buy that? I, I don't. I just don't think people realize how nice it is as an office. I personally would rather have my own place. Yeah, me too. I, I, I actually, I, in, in in a sense, it is is nicer to have your own place, but it's not like sleeping in any office that you've ever seen. Right. And so people imagine that it's, it, oh, it's like where I work. No. <laughs> no, it's not. I just wonder, like, the rationale, like, oh, if you give people a raise, more people who aren't millionaires or billionaires or whatever will want to serve. It's like people don't want to serve in Congress because it's awful. Right. Like, this isn't going to be Well, for better. that, you'd have, to, you'd have to give them a pretty big raise. Yeah. If you were, let me tell you something. If you were a millionaire or a billionaire and you're like, hmm, I think I'll run for Congress, I don't I'd, get be it. Like, I'd be like, dude, you need to have your fucking head examined. Well, like Tom Steyer, the billionaire environmentalist donor who yeah, like, ran for fun, Senate or like, thought about running thought for about Senate. Thought about running for Senate. Yeah, and I was like, is he fucking nuts? He can buy a senator. 
<laughs> he can buy a bunch of Congress people. He can buy like a whole do. section of a state legislature. Yeah, that's much better than actually running for Congress. Here's why I I find it galling for members of the U.S. Congress to ask for better compensation. There's the annual salary, which is three times the the U.S. median household income. Just leave that aside. Okay. It's we'll leave $174,000 aside. That's part of your compensation. Hold on. I'm moving this $174,000 to a big space in the room so we can call it aside. You can uh, you you serve for five years. Your pension kicks in. You get a pension for life. Yep. The longer you serve, the bigger it is. But beyond even that, and the perks, you know, the physical environment that you live in. That's You can gilded. frank the shit out of some envelopes, son. Yeah, you can send all the mail you want. Yeah. <laughs> who, who doesn't get to thrill up their leg? The privilege of the frank. Sending mad postcards up in his piece. Here's, here's, why, here's why it's going. You're, if, you're, if you make it to Washington, you're set for life. Yeah, basically. You're basically. A, no matter what happens, even if you go to jail, you're a former... U.S. congressman or senator, and and you can trade on that till you die. You're set for life. The yep. paid speeches you're not allowed to give while you're. You can make the paid speeches as soon as you're done. Even the 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 feeble restrictions on becoming a lobbyist that do exist are so easy to get around that you can do it. Yeah, Tom Daschle might... did it. Yeah, it's 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 no problem. So you're set for life. So you should just uh, be cognizant of that and not ask for more money. Why they would even ask for money, it, you know, it's a politically toxic thing. And I, I don't really even understand why Sandy Hoyer would do that. But uh, here are the here we have laid out the reasons we think that he he is incorrect. There, there you go. Uh, you know, you know something when right now when when. Uh, Congress critters leave and then come back to D.C. as lobbyists. There's, as you said, all kinds of new laws that kind of shield them from having to disclose themselves as lobbyists. They do lobbying, but they call themselves uh, other names. Advisor. Advisors. You don't even you're, – if you're in Washington, you can you can go on Wall Street and work right. for a private equity They company. get – Eric Canner. They get furious with you. They get furious with you when you call them lobbyists. Right, because I'm like not a lobbyist according to this right. bizarre legal definition in which the only people who are lobbyists who make I, two <laughs> lobbying contacts in the course of the year and do a majority you, of their do work. You, do you remember are, Evan Bayh, Indiana senator? Yes. And, like, soulless suck pump. <laughs> he, he, um, I was mean. <laughs> I'm a mean person. He's not a good person, so I don't care. Um, so he's he's got, like, two lobbying jobs after leaving Congress. I wrote an article about how he had two lobbying jobs and his like some spokesperson because he wouldn't even confront me himself because he's a coward <laughs> like called and yelled that's how you really feel called and yelled at me and was like he's not a lobbyist i was like come on you cannot con an honest john i know that like you're saying that based on these laws that allow him to claim he's not but like is he not calling congress and advising them or is he, is he literally standing in a field somewhere waiting and hoping that someone will come up and ask him for his fucking advice. <laughs> the goddamn lobbyist, get off the phone with me. Yeah, the, the the broader popular understanding of what a lobbyist is is correct. You know, someone who 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 works for a company yeah. and tries to influence Congress. And you get paid, man. That's why a lot of these people are here. I think that like even, you know, uh, Eric Cantor, he didn't want to leave Congress when he left Congress, but when he did, he cashed out okay. Yeah, he's like, "All right. Yeah, he's doing fine. Doing great." 
you get you get put and what's what's amazing about this is that is that you don't actually have to return you don't actually go from congress to like a life of productivity it's not like it's not like well now i got to roll my sleeves you know do some hard labor get down in it get calluses on my hands again that's well that's you what know? george w bush did yeah he painted he cleared some brush. He cleared a lot of brush. You don't have to do that. You you sit on these you sit on these sort of like meaningless boards at corporations, foundations, private equity boards. You know, I don't know what the fuck Eric Cantor knows about private equity. It's a good question. You know, honestly, all that really matters is that he has connections and can like get you into the room with people of power. That's why, and and that's an easy cushy job, easy cushy job. And like, I think a lot of people. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Congress, that you have to live so hard on your at your swank office where everything is handed to you and you're taken care of 24 seven, and then you only have 174 thousand dollars to spend. But just wait, wait a little bit. We'll you will you will have plenty of opportunities to. I, I want to just say one last thing. Yeah, go ahead. They the offices where lawmakers you know work and reside. If you're one of those. <laughs> It's across the street from the Capitol, all around the Capitol, and if it's on a if it's a hot day, you don't have to go outside to get to the chamber. You can to go underground. Fun. Not only can you go underground, but there's a little train down there that will take you. They even have their own little choo choo. No metro. <laughs> they, they no metro own, card required. They have their own little train and their own elevators. It's well, I mean, yeah, yeah, but the train is better. You're right. I don't and know why all I the Chick Fil A you could ever want at lunch <laughs> that all, sounds good to me yeah all of i it. didn't know there was a chick-fil-a in there no i just mean they always have chick-fil-a at their events that's like a thing oh uh, our producers are telling us that there's a froyo place in the cafeteria at really Congress too yeah the senate side that sounds good yeah so you know what give other people a raise you assholes bye bye <laughs> thanks for joining us today today we had politics reporter samantha lockman you can follow her on Twitter. At Sam Lachman. That's right. S-A-M-L-A-C-H-M-A-N. L-A-C-H-M-A-N. Sam Man with a lock in the middle. Uh, <laughs> I was I was bullied in elementary school for having man in my first name and my last name. That is Isn't some that weird cool? bullying. I know. Like, that is like some eerily specific. It's like someone sat there and was like, how are we going to make fun of Samantha Lachman? Dude, she's got man in both her names. They called me Man Squared when we learned about um what are those things the little numbers above exponents exponents <laughs> we learned about exponents <laughs> right right, right. band men yeah <laughs> and we also had senior reporter arthur delaney who you can follow at arthur delaney hp please do that do that right now he's really he really wants you to follow him and you can follow me at deceiver dc e-i-v-e-r it's like the word deceiver but the first e is gone sorry for complicating it um, so thanks guys. Thanks for joining us. And coming up, we are going to round out this episode with a continuation of a conversation we started last week with foreign affairs reporters, Ali Watkins and Akbar Ahmed. Part two of our conversation about Seymour Hersh's controversial claims about the Osama bin Laden raid is up next. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. 
okay. To like peel peel it back a little bit. All right. Let's think about this. So we have an official story about how the Bin Laden raid went down, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and people know this story, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, I guess, part of our celebrated history. All right, so so Hirsch is out. He's like, it didn't go exactly the way the Obama administration telling you. It went this way instead. So, like, if I'm, like, just an ordinary person, I'm like, okay, but he's still dead, right? He's right. still dead? Mm-hmm. Right. All right, so what do I, why do I care about this? So let's try to get it, like, what is really at stake here mm-hmm. to have these two competing ideas of how Osama bin Laden uh, uh, was killed. Yeah, we had a conversation about this yesterday where we were saying, you know, in the grand scheme of conspiracy theories, this, the the consequence, it's not like you have, oh, we actually, like, blew up half of Pakistan, not just Osama bin Laden. You know what I mean? The the end result is still the same. It's, It's the path of how we got to that end result. I will say, like, two points on this. One is, I think your point on ordinary Americans not caring that much matters a lot. And, like, just really quickly, I'd love to share my perspective as a Pakistani. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Among Americans when the OBL raid happened, right? I was at university, and I remember people being around televisions being like, America, America. And I felt so, in that moment, like alienated and almost afraid to be a Pakistani on campus, which is a different issue. Right. The point being, that was a moment of jubilation. And as you're saying, it's stuck in a national memory. It's not going away. So even if Seymour Hersh now says... Osama wasn't that important to Al-Qaeda or like the SEALs got Osama through working with the Pakistanis. Americans don't care. Americans think Osama evil. We were told that he killed 3000 people on 9-11. We want him gone. So I think that's an important point. Like people don't really care. Yeah, It doesn't change the symbolism of that moment. Right. The right. second point I'd make is where it does matter and the stakes are really high is with Pakistani intelligence. And this is like this affects the U.S. relationship with them. Seymour Hirsch claims that Pakistani intelligence knew where Osama was, hid him for five years, kept him in prison, and then sort of, in, in Hirsch's telling, this is what happened. The Americans found out he was dead through a walk-in, went to the Park Science, were like, you assholes. And Park Science said, oops, sorry, here you go. Which, like, that's <laughs> not how relationships work, especially not with the Pakistanis. And if this were to be proven true, like, the Pakistanis are critical to America. Now, Ali and I just did a piece in March on... Once again, the White House is cozying up to the Pakistani army and the ISI like never before. Right. Because they're moving out of Afghanistan. Who is going to be that patron in Afghanistan? It's going to have to be Islamabad. It's not going to be like Iran, right? Right. No, of course not. Yeah. So who is going to do that for them? And if this were to be proven true, the big allegation is the Pakistanis are even shadier than previously acknowledged. And that would be crazy. I don't think American policymakers would be as willing to trust the ISI and the Pakistani army if they knew the army had Osama for five years and didn't tell them. Right. And the second thing that's at stake there is also with the regional ally. Hirsch makes the claim that Saudi funded, like knew about Osama's presence, funded it, and managed it, which is a very strange claim to make. And again, says, do you want to be friends with these people if that's true? So this is just saying, if that were true, the U.S. relationships with Pakistan and Saudi would be in major jeopardy. They, you know, they, Hirsch also claims that the cache of intelligence materials that were carted off from the raid, it's a complete fabrication. Mm-hmm. Is there any truth to that? Like, I think his claim is more that it was, like, gotten in other places and then they pretended it was from 
But one thing Max Fisher does point out, mm. and I will give him this, is that he he points out that Al Zawahiri like quoted from that material mm-hmm. before we knew of its existence, mm-hmm. uh, and and so it it it, it, it it's. It's like a really odd claim, super contradictory, because, you know, tons of stories have been written about that intelligence right. that was carted off from that, mm-hmm. <clears throat> including stories about how, uh, toward the end, bin Laden was concerned that al-Qaeda had sort of, like, lost the hearts mm-hmm. and minds of the people that al-Qaeda was ostensibly supporting, and mm-hmm. they become known for uh, just simply ruining the lives of Muslim people. Right. And, and, and that, you know, to put it glibly, it's a shitty and glib way to put it, al-Qaeda's branding had suffered. <laughs> right. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Which is like a kind of fucked up thing <laughs> to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, there was, an, there was an al-Qaeda brand? Of, <laughs> okay. But, but there was a lot of reporting done off that material, and now that's a fabrication as well? I don't think Hirsch says it's a fabrication. I think Fisher got the nuance wrong there. Okay. Hirsch's claim, to my understanding, is these were real files and documents. Like Zahiri quoted from them. They are valid. His claim is, in his elaborate story of, like, this was an invented event to support Obama's re-election. Like, we have to remember, that's what he says it's about. He says this was an invented event. The Americans got that documentation elsewhere and pretended it was from the Osama bin Laden raid. So they sort of had it from whatever other raids they'd been okay. doing. And they were like, look at this big win. Also, here is another big win. Like gilding the lily, as it were. You know? Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Was fair that enough. your understanding? Uh, yeah, yeah, essentially. The, the information was always there. It right. was just where we got it. The um, So there's a, there's an article in Foreign Policy from Hussein Khani, who is... Uh, at, at the time of the raid, he was he was uh, he was uh, Islamabad's ambassador to Washington, uh, and he is crazy uh, skeptical of this thing. He says that he says that a lot of the Hirsch's allega- allegations uh, border on fantasy. Uh, he says that if the ISI had been holding on to Bin Laden for all this time, there was no way they wouldn't have co- There's no way they would have cooperated with the U.S. for some kind of like rate on this without like a serious ironclad quid pro quo um uh they would have demanded glory from cooperation they would have asked you talk about gilding lily they i say would have asked mm-hmm. for their lily to get crazy gilded <laughs> after this uh and, and, and that and, and that uh you know he says that he he does say that uh that when he was interviewed in the wake of the raid that he felt connie felt that yeah, someone, someone was was protecting Bin Laden. I give credence, to but him. he insists it wasn't the ISI or the Pakistani government. I do give a little bit of credence, not a ton, to Ambassador Hakani. Ambassador Hakani is a person who lives in Washington now and cannot return to Pakistan. Right. Because he was removed from his post as ambassador. The army hates him. Pushed out by the generals and right. Hirsch's story. And yeah. now he's turning around. So that's interesting because the army and the ISI hate Haqqani and they hate his wife, who is a parliamentarian, Farinaz Bahani. So for him to turn around and say this is interesting. Um, I think his point that someone had to know is important. And that goes back to like this woman, Carlotta Gall, who was a New York Times mm-hmm. correspondent. She also last year wrote, the ISI knew. So that's sort of been around. I mean, the ISI could not have not known. Like, they're good at their jobs. They're horrible, and they are, like, exploitative, but they are good at what they do. Right, right. Um, I think Ambassador Haqqani's takedown of this, though, is a little... It's not, again, it's not based on reporting. And that, to me, is like, this is a lot of people spouting off. It's based on, I was there, but you were ambassador for a civilian government, a civilian government that did not have good ties with the military at the time. 
right. when the, if the military was running stuff, they were not like calling Hakani and be like, "Hey, Hassan, just keeping you in the loop. FYI, we got twenty five million dollars because they're not going to give Ambassador Hakani a cent of those twenty five million dollars." So, I think it's a good point. It's well argued, but he might not have been in the know at the time as much as he claims. I think the the biggest thing, and from the Hakani story too, that we're that we're kind of getting in this aftermath of the Hirsch story is that someone somewhere in ISI knew or related somehow to ISI knew, you know, how valuable the information was that got to the U.S. through that potential avenue still is yet to be seen um, given editor's notes and whatnot. Um, But I think, you know, looking off of all of these stories, it's like that seems to be the one consistency. Right. You know, it's like nobody really knows the specifics of it, but there was some asset somewhere that appears to – which also doesn't totally dilute the, the Obama administration narrative if that part is true um, because, right. you know, if hypothetically there was this intelligence asset from Pakistan that, that sold this secret to, to the CIA – um, it would make sense for the Obama administration to hide that fact. Right. Sure. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Obviously, they're not going to be like, hey, by the way, this guy over right. here, <laughs> just for the record, ISI was this one. <laughs> just dude. Exactly. So that is an interesting twist in this whole narrative that honestly only complicates it, an incredibly complicated story further. I think the thing that Ambassador Khani raises that is really good with that question is someone somewhere new. And now the really big question people have to find out is, why did the Pakistanis do this? If they knew and they sheltered him, and there's a lot of theories around that and not a lot of good reporting. Right. One instance is um, the colleague I mentioned who got into trouble with the ISI. Dexter Filkins in The New Yorker wrote a profile of him in 2011. And his name was Salim Shahzad. What Salim was researching was ties between Al-Qaeda and the Pakistani army. And two weeks after Osama bin Laden raid, or like three weeks, the biggest naval base in Pakistan got infiltrated, attacked by al-Qaeda. It's in my hometown. Uh, they destroyed tons of equipment, killed scores of military people. And what Dexter Filkins in New Yorker says is, it appears that the army is scared of al-Qaeda sympathizers in its own ranks. This is a really overlooked point. So it might not even be cash. It might be ideological. There might be ISI officers who are like, we believe in Osama. We will keep him because he is, to some extent, not just strategically important, like our spiritual whatever leader. And that's scary. That is, in fact, one of the scariest things. Because Ambassador Akhani asks, why would the Pakistanis keep him? Why would they not tell the U.S.? That might be a reason because... The so sort of like a Kim Philby situation in the in the ISI. I'm not familiar. Oh, he's the, <laughs> <laughs> Phil, 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 Kim Philby is the, um, the uh, British spy MI6 okay uh who was a soviet uh double agent oh, uh for 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 decades and actually uh and actually liaise was liaison uh in the 50s with uh with american intelligence and uh and he he uh dis- at this at the soviet union's behest he disrupted a ton of of uh of British intelligence operations like wow. throughout Europe. I think people use that comparison a couple times when talking about this story, like that mm. just whole twisting spy for a spy for right. a spy yeah. for a spy thing. Yeah, but you know, I think I think there have been implications that the ISI has been infiltrated by Al Qaeda like probably since, you know Forever. Yeah, forever. <laughs> you know, at least you know, I was reading about this certainly in the wake of the of the September eleventh attacks and straight on up. And it's always to me been like a serious complicating factor 
in anything the United States does with with Pakistan. Um, but 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 so but but we still have this critical linchpin relationship with Pakistan, yeah. and and like it, it has it obviously has to do with the fact that they're a nuclear power has the fact that there's like a lot of like kind of like tea cooling that needs to happen between Pakistan and India. Uh, there, there, there's the hope, like you said, of playing some kind of like role in the void we leave in Afghanistan. And so as troublesome as we have it, right? and they have it with us too, mm-hmm. we're kind of, we're kind of like locked in this like kind of like tango with one another. Right. How, how do, how do we keep on dancing after this story? Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly complicated relationship. And we, I, we did a lot of kind of backgrounding and sourcing on this when we were working on sort of our Pakistan stories, you know, some of my conversations on the U.S. intelligence side of it, um, again, being skeptical of your sources, but kind of listening to what they perceive of that relationship, which is very different from what the ISI perceives of the U.S. relationship, um, is kind of, I mean, the, the U.S. is the first to maybe not officially, but, you know, think bad things about the ISI. They're yeah. also more than willing to work with them when it's beneficial for the U.S. Um, you know, there's been evidence of, of cooperation between the CIA and ISI on drone strikes. Um, we've seen documentation of that back in 2013. Um, and, and so the one of the perceptions that I've kind of heard is that, you know, the U.S. and ISI or CIA, ISI, Intel, ISI, whatever you want to say, more than willing to work together. The kind of gentleman's agreement is that Pakistan can always deny it. And Pakistan can always say, look at all this terrible shit the U.S. is doing. And then behind the back door, they're like, yeah, sure, you can pull that drone trigger. We're just going to look this way. You know? So I, there's a kind of weird mutual understanding to an extent, I think. At least that's the perception from the U.S. side. And this is one of the strongest parts of Seymour Hersh's piece, is when he talks about the relationship with the ISI, where he says what the ISI has to gain from the U.S. is money, and it's not money I think people misunderstand this because U.S. military aid to Pakistan has kind of yo-yoed and gone down. Covert aid, as Ali knows all too well, doesn't go on any books. Like, that's just there. That's just like coffers of money that's given to the ISI. No one knows. So when we're like, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship has really been struggling. Meanwhile, like, the spigot... Money's going out the door. We're dropping money bags like on random corners. Charlie Wilson style. Right. (laughs) And and that's the other thing from the Pakistani side. They're like, you guys came... And you screwed us over. Like, you, we were not a basket case before Charlie Wilson came and was like, maybe your country could only serve as a purpose to push the Soviet side of Afghanistan. Maybe that's what your country is. And the Pakistanis were like, okay, do you have a lot of money? And he was like, yeah. So they did it. And the Pakistanis really blame the U.S. for that. To date, right? They say the reason we have radical Islamic extremism is the 1980s. Right. It is the U.S. creating the Taliban Mujahideen in our backyard and in parts of our country that were ungoverned. So I think how does that relationship continue now? Like, they know they need the U.S., but they feel very, very burned by the U.S. over time. And I'm not justifying that. I'm just saying that's how they feel. Like, they feel like the U.S. has demonized them, villainized them, said the ISI is evil, set homeland there. Like, we don't like these things. <laughs> Zero Dark Thirty. Like, literally had people in Pakistan speaking Arabic. Do you even know who we are? Like, it's just, it's rough. <laughs> so from that point of view, the Pakistanis feel burned by the U.S. And, and no one likes, especially not when you are the, the, the lone Islamic nuke. And you think you're really powerful. Pakistanis are pretty, I mean, they're like the fifth biggest army in the world or something. They don't think of themselves as anyone's sidekick, right? And if the U.S. treats them that way, they're not going to react well. Mm-hmm. So that's why it, it does become inherently transactional because I think there's a respect deficit. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I don't know that this is necessarily a nuclear bomb on the relationship. I think the relationship has just always been incredibly complicated and takes twists and turns right. every time something happens, and this is just another twist. And nobody knows the truth in it, which is going to make it that much so This is kind of like Real Housewives of Orange County if everyone had <laughs> and like and like massive intelligence apparatuses. Yeah, essentially. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we're all just guys living in pre-war apartments that will never be post-war <laughs> <laughs> let me go back and say let me go back and say we talked about this for two days uh two podcasts and we'll keep coming back to it and yeah. i want to thank you guys for being here um uh and and you guys can follow ali Watkins on twitter at i believe at a-l-i-w-a-t-k-i-n-s yep and your Twitter account, I do not know. Uh, it's Akbar. S- Offhand. I mean, I right. follow you. So but it's I- A-K-B-A-R. I feel like I'm at Starbucks. A-K-B-A-R-S-A-H-M-E-D. There you go. Yeah. Ali Akbar. Also, just a quick side note. <laughs> my middle name. It's a really good team. It's actually, it's nice because whenever we write stories on the region, like, we'll always get, they're like, oh, Ali Akbar, you're <laughs> reporting to, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten that say, thanks for your article, Mr. Watkins. And I'm like, does it, oh. does Watkins sound like a name that. Ali. Ali would. I, uh, Praise. Oh, well. Praise be to Allah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, inshallah, we'll do have a discussion again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Usero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by HuffPost reporters Akbar Ahmed, Arthur Delaney, Sam Lockman, and Ali Watkins. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Please check us out on the iTunes store for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.